Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. Gordon, good to see you. It is good to see you, Will. Nice to be here with you all today. It's a beautiful yeah. day in the field. Uh, well, yeah, and I just got back from the field, um, left uh, Sunday and got back yesterday. And uh, boy, it, it was Southern Idaho and we, uh, we tromped about for two solid days in the deserts and uh, we got 10 species. That was, uh, that was fun, but it's good to be back home. Absolutely. In my own bed. 10 it's, species of reptiles. Any amphibians? And, uh, yeah. Um, we, we got one toad. Okay. Woodhouse's Woodhouse's toad. toad yeah. And then uh, the rest were reptiles. Excellent. Yeah. Well, we're talking about, you know, one of my favorite topics today, and it's migration, you know, and just to throw it right out there, I'm not even going to try to lead in with anything. Yeah, you don't need to. Just (laughs) migration. Migration. And I like to think of it, you know, as if you're a creature out there in the world and some type of stress comes and that stress, you know, it it could be your food supplies going away. Could Mm -hmm. be, man, you're looking at the thermometer. It's dropping, dropping, and uh, the sunlight's dropping too. Day length is oh, less fo- and less. Yeah, and and you've got a, you've got a pretty important choice to make pretty soon. Right, either fight or flight, hibernation or or migration. migration. That's right. Yeah, and and uh, I remember, I think I was in Raleigh. I was at NC State in Raleigh, and that film Winged Migration came mm. out. We were able to see that in the theaters. If That's you haven't true. seen that film, there's some amazing footage, especially. We're talking thousands of meters in the air following some of these high altitude migratory geese. Right. With in the Asia. ultralights. Yeah. Some, uh, so it's a, it's a topic that, you know, just kind of, it's glamorous. It's exciting. You, t- you think about these athletes of the, of the avian and other groups too, not just birds, um, performing these pretty Amazing, remarkable yeah. feats. Yeah. So not just, uh, not just birds. Right. Just, obviously that's the. The thing that pops up in a lot of people's minds is bird migration, but a lot of uh, terrestrial creatures migrate, you know, wildebeests, and even the lowly amphibians. Uh, There's breeding migrations back to, from a terrestrial existence in the non-breeding state, and then they head back to their ponds or lakes or whatever breeding area they need to get to. Yeah. And sometimes it's quite a trek for these little salamanders or frogs. Oh, yeah. And that's uh, depending if you're a small guy. Yeah. Going from that breeding habitat to that, to that wintering habitat, that's difficult. And, and there's, there's other migrations, you know, I tend to think of, of first the, the big latitudinal migrations from, you know, the geese flying south kind of thing mm-hmm. from North America to South America, et cetera. But there's also altitudinal migrations. Some creatures mm. stay at the same latitude. And they just happen to go up, up or down, up or down, depending on the season and, and what they're up to right. in their next phase of life. Right. Yeah. So, you know, and there's, and people migrate. I want to migrate. I wish I want to go to Baja. I want to yeah. go to Baja in the winter right. and sell fish tacos and eat a lot of them. I have bad circulation, so I wouldn't mind the tropics or subtropics when Absolutely. my hands and feet start to numb up. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's, there are a lot of people groups that. Probably some still do that. Traditionally in our area, 
Uh, the Nez Perce would go and take their summers on the Great Plains of Montana and hunt bison mm -hmm. and then spend the rest of the year back here in, in Idaho and Oregon. Right. And so following uh, food supply in, right. in large part. And so across all kinds of different groups of creatures, we have this remarkable phenomenon. Yeah. And then the big question that pops up in a lot of biologists is, uh, you know, how do these animals know where to go? Mm, absolutely. So do you have any thoughts on that, Will? I do have, I do have some thoughts on that. Um, and one of the things that you know, in the, in the birding world, the how, I'm going to, I'm going to leave a lot of the how to you, but I'm going to uh, maybe get into a little bit of the why mm -hmm. uh, here first, um, before we get to the hows. And one of the, the, the hows or what, or what triggers this. And one of the things that I love to start to see this time of year, I'll, I'll probably stick mostly in the bird world here. Mm -hmm. You start to see these birds flocking around and acting a little bit crazy yeah. and they're feeding like mad uh, you start to see all those leftover fruits in the fruit trees, whether you have a crab apple or a mountain ash or something like that. All the robins are mobbing in. Yeah. And, and the birds and they're are- loading up. They're loading up. And uh, that phenomenon is called Zugenrua. Uh, or re uh, migratory restlessness. Yeah, migratory restlessness. And so these birds have, they've somehow gotten the itch. Right. And that, how, why that occurs, what causes, what triggers that response- all, all living things can sense and respond to their environment. Mm -hmm. And these robins are, they're sensing something. Right. And there's some internal hormonal changes yeah. occurring. One and of I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I, I, I know a little bit about how they orient. Yeah. But as far as what's going on physiologically, that's causing the migra I call it migratory restlessness, but the German, that word, is yeah. that a German word? That's that German, Zugenruhe. Zugenrua. Yeah, nice. Cool. Yeah, and so, and, and it's been long thought, and I'm sure there are other things uh, that contribute, but it's been long thought that photo period is kind of the primary mm -hmm. dictator for the onset of bird migration. Right. Yeah. So they, 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 when they mess with photo periods, they can really alter whether something's going to migrate. Right. And so that, and that's the quantity of daylight, mm -hmm. right? So right now we are in spring, and so our photo period is increasing. It'll increase until the summer solstice and then, and it'll, then start, it'll start decreasing. Yeah, exactly. And so some, some threshold is reached, some trigger or some switch is turned or flipped and they, they know it's time. Yeah. Yeah. And often juveniles will, will rally into these flocks with adults so that they can find the way. They'll kind of uh, tag along with some of their mentors or peers so they can learn this route on their own. But some others just somehow figure it out on their own. Yeah. Yeah. How in the world? How do they? Yeah. Do some they... of it's genetic and some of it is learned. So th they've done a lot of, you know, it's not fresh in my brain, but there was um, some, some experiments where they had adults versus juveniles and they migrate sort of southwesterly along the sort of the coastlands of, um, from Denmark and up up north northern Europe down along Belgium and into France and and when they displace some of the birds to more central Europe the adults would reorient and migrate in the in the right direction even though it's in a different direction than they normally flew they would normally fly southwest along the coast 
but because they were displaced inland, they would reorient correctly, whereas the juveniles were a little more naive and just sort of kept their route of going southwest, which would put them in the wrong spot. So, <laughs> yeah, some good evidence for for migra- migration, at least in part, being learned. Learned. Certain species. And some of it is just sort of ingrained, innate. So, and then there were some uh, some birds, I forget the, the, the species, where there was one species that would be long migrants and then one that were short. And they did some hybrids where, and then their migration was an intermediate length. Oh, very interesting. So. Yeah. So there's a lot to this. A lot to it. And. It's uh, difficult to study. We can, we can scrape the surface and a lot of serious biologists have done very in-depth research over many years and they're still really descriptive. It's often very hard to actually get to the bottom of what's going on in their noggin and even orientation, you know, looking at what is their compass. Right. That's something we can segue to, but is there anything else that you want to say before I start? No, I I like that. So what sense, what sense is driving their compass? And we're going to see a variety of things here because we, because we see a variety of migration types. And so we see, we see, uh, there's also a lot of aquatic species. If you think of the, the anadromous and catadromous fish species. So some fish They'll come and they'll breed in freshwater and then uh, they'll head back out to the ocean or they'll spawn out and die. Um, but you have this salt to fresh and fresh to salt migration mm-hmm. as well. And they need to find that home stream. They need to find that natal stream right. where they were hatched. Those were the catadromous where they're, they're living their adult life in the ocean, salt water, and then they migrate up to. I think that's oh, the. Oh, no, ana- that's, that's the anadromous. Yep. Yeah, that go upstream yep. to freshwater to spawn. Yep. And the catadromous, which are like the eels, yep. that go from North America and Europe and go down to the Sargasso Sea. The Sargasso Sea. And deep, deep in the depths there in the Atlantic Ocean, they spawn somewhere. And then the, the um, elvers, the young, start to migrate back up to where their parents were from. And it was amazing. I remember seeing this one uh, Moody science film where they were looking at uh, how the salmon would actually, you know, migrate, like you mentioned, go up the natal stream. So you've got all these rivers coming into the Pacific Ocean. And then off of those main rivers, there's tributaries. And these fish, after spending several years out at sea, growing up to be an adult, and they, they can find the right river, migrate up it, and then find the right tributary. <laughs> and all of it it's, is olfaction. It's all uh, olfaction, all of it. And this, and, and the definitive study is so beautiful. Olf- and define olfaction for so olfaction, our audience. Yeah, that's, that's kind of broadly the sense of smell. So if you're on land, you'd call that the sense of smell. You're sensing concentrations of particulate matter in the air. If you're in water, you're still, you're still getting particulate matter, but the medium that you're breathing in right. is water. Right. But and there's so still chemicals. Odorant. There's the chemicals either in the air or in the water yeah. that bind to olfactory receptors in a fish yep. or in an amphibian or whatever. And they, they, the incredible sense of smell, you, you would think there's no difference between these two streams, but just the combination of chemicals and nutrients 
from decayed vegetation. It's just, there's a certain fingerprint of ol olfactory, they're called odorant molecules, yeah. that the fish senses. And they actually put some kind of uh, electro, I don't know what it was called. It's like an EEG or so, no, e, like electroencephalogram. But they were measuring uh, neural activity in the olfactory nerves when they washed the natal, if they washed water from the non-natal stream, you know, hardly just the baseline activity of yeah. neural activity. Yeah. But when they put water on the olfactory nerves of their natal stream, then the graphics would just go berserk. Incredible. <laughs> that'd, be, yeah, that'd, um, be like, so, that'd be like you going to Seattle or, or, or me going to Seattle and then following the smell of mom's baked apple pie. Exactly. And home. then getting really, really excited <laughs> the closer you got. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're, they're sensing this, this odor trail in the water and going all the way up to the right tributary. Yeah. All the way up to their, a small, small stream where they uh, spawn, shed their eggs and the males shed their sperm. and fertilize and then they die yeah and it's just incredible these are these are incredible biological events and often like i said before when something happens that you're familiar with you grew up with say you from the northwest oh yeah salmon spawn whoop-de-doo the more common something is the less we think anything well what's the big deal but we have to realize that just because there's a riot of life out there doesn't mean that it's simple in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. There's always something to dig into and learn more about. Yeah. Uh, sa salmon it's, do that. Lamprey do that. Some of the salmon actually will return and go back and forth a few years. Some only just one time and spawn out. And there's another interesting study uh, for a while, biologists, they knew the salmon would migrate back to their natal stream, just like bird banders mm -hmm. know, hey, this Swainson's hawk that was in, in Idaho last year, this winter it's in Argentina. And so we, we, we've determined, we've determined kind of where birds breed and where they spend their winters. That's a long way. That's a long ways. That's an, one of the most incredible migrations for. Except for, the Arctic turn. Per size. Isn't the Arctic turn. Well, I was thinking per gram, I think oh. the Swainson's hawk, just because it's so big, that impresses me. Right. But yeah, the turn, the turn is even more miles. But um, another interesting study in trying to determine what the salmon were doing one research study that I read, they put blinders, these little plastic shields over the eyes of the salmon and uh, to test to see if they would make it to their natal stream. And? The majority did make it. And they're, they're, that, was, uh, that was one variable. They changed that variable and then took the blinders off and then put some benzocaine on the olfactory sense uh, where the, those odorants would go into the, into the nares of the salmon. They numbed, they numbed the olfactory sense and then set those salmon out, and a significant number did not make it back to their natal stream. Hence, hence determining that olfaction is really important. Right. Those odorant molecules have to be sensed to find that, that native natal stream. And some fish will even go up the culvert they came out of from the fish hatchery. Right. That's how attuned they are. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah. And there's another study, it was done back in the 60s on the California newt. Hmm. And uh, 
It, there's a close relative up in where we are called the rough-skinned newt. Yeah. There's the red-bellied newt, rough-skinned newt, and the California newt. I, th- I think that's the one. I wonder if Gingrich's um, mom was a herpetologist. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of anyone else named Newt. Newt. Yeah, newts are, are a type of salamander. And uh, Boy named these Sue. guys would migrate to their natal stream to breed, but they could be displaced for miles over several hill and dale valleys ridges Mm. and this would be a cruel study today or some people wouldn't be keen on this study but they blinded i i guess it was just too hard to put a little mask over their eyes so they blinded some of these newts to see if it was uh, visual cues that were helping them orient and those blinded newts just like you were saying about the fish they made a lot of them made it back, but then they uh, did where they took formaldehyde and destroyed the olfactory, mm-hmm. the nerves, and those guys failed to make it to the stream. They also were able to surgically extirpate the olfactory nerves. They did it two oh, ways: wow. uh, whether it was just chemically killing them with formaldehyde or surgically killing those olfactory nerves and those guys failed to make it back Mm. unless the ones that did they found had regenerated their (laughs) their olfactory nerves and made it back you're not going to keep a good new down yeah these are troopers oh wow uh, that that were just amazing to get back without their eyes and uh and the ones that didn't have their sense of smell made it if they grew it back grew back there man so it's impressive it's it's impressive from lowly newts to birds now birds their orientation there's several different compasses you know where how do they go and there's the they're using some of them use the magnetic field of the earth yep and uh they've got they've done studies where if they put a magnet on a collar of homing pigeons that could screw up their sense of direction Mm mm-hmm because this magnet was interfering with them sensing the magnetic field of the earth and that fa- uh, they would fail. But if they did a, a, a bronze band that was not magnet for a control, yeah. they were fine. Oh, very interesting. Um, and, uh, but then some use a stellar uh, compass, so solar compass. Mm-hmm. They, they are looking at the pattern of the stars. Lots of migrations nighttime mm-hmm. and, and radars pick that up. And a lot of, um, you know, if you get these bird reports, you get eBird, you know, you'll, you will get a report that there was a big mass on the, on the weather radar the night before. And this is a, a group of songbirds flying over the Gulf of Mexico, for example. Wow. And they're often doing stellar night migration, um, in mass at night. Wow. Yeah. And so the, the you'll expect, a, a everyone shows up if you've not, not to promote a, a well, I'm going to promote a movie just because it's fun. Uh, you know, you'll, it's, I think there's maybe some, it's, I think it's a PG movie, but anyway, a big, the big year uh, is a fun birding movie and uh-huh. uh, the, the birders get their reports that the, the fallout has occurred. The big group of birds that just flew over the Gulf landed on the Gulf coast of the U.S. And so birders, birders no, migrate. Yeah, right. Let's see, <laughs> see the big to event. Go, to go see the big event, right. You know, butterflies, monarchs oh, yeah, the in particular, monarchs. they That's have, amazing. they have magnetite 
a little bit of this mineral in their brain and, and thought that that's also their primary means of of orienting their internal mm-hmm. compass north yeah, south. Yeah, they've got the it's interesting because you've got different populations of monarchs, uh, the east, eastern coast up in uh, eastern U.S. and Canada. They migrate down. Some of them migrate into Florida and into Cuba, but some of them migrate along the Gulf Coast and down into Mexico. So most of the eastern and central populations migrate down, and they're heading for Mexico in this uh, this coniferous forest. Yeah. Uh, I think it's oak, uh, some of it's oak pine mix, but it's this trans, uh, it's a volcanic range in Mexico. And they, all these monarchs migrate down there, huge numbers, and they just completely blanket the trees in this, these, uh, this small area in this, well, it's not huge. Yeah. And they blanket the trees and mate. But what's interesting is the whole migrate, the whole migratory route, full cycle. It's multi-generational. Yeah, it's four generations. It's multi-generational faithfulness right there. Yeah, there's, yeah, covenantal. Absolutely. (laughs) Because the, the, the adults that make it down and breed, those... They're young as they migrate north and then they lay eggs and those caterpillars will munch, munch, grow, 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 and and then get uh, to be adults and then continue the journey north. So it's like four generations moving north and then that fourth generation will migrate south and make the whole trip except from September or October to November down to Mexico. There are some uh, monarch uh, populations that don't migrate. Okay. The Western monarchs migrate to mostly California. Mm. But remember, there's always exceptions. Uh, oh, yeah, always. There's, there's migratory monarchs there's, um, and some non-migratory monarchs. Like Canada geese. Yeah. Yeah, a lot, of our, a lot of our robins, a lot of our geese here, they really don't leave. Uh, some, will, some will fly down to the valley. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not far at all. Right. And then, and then there's some, that, some of those altitudinal migrants uh, locally here. If you put up a bird feeder in the winter, what's one of the birds you're going to, you're guaranteed to see? Juncos. Juncos. Yeah. They come down in the winter. Mm-hmm. They come down in the winter and they'll go right back up to Moscow mountain and breed in the summer. Wow. They just like a little bit of elevation. Right. Uh, and they're not going to breed in town there. They say, you know, it's too busy here. I'm going to head back up to the mountains. Right. Um, but they're the, one of the first snowbirds to show up once hmm. the snow flies in the winter. Yeah. You know, there was this cool experiment uh, with birds. I thought it was pretty elegant uh, in order to uh, test the, the breeding orientation. And they would put the bird in, you may remember this from ornithology, they'd put the bird in a funnel mm-hmm. with blotting paper walls. And then the bottom of the, it would be contained so the bird couldn't get out. And at the bottom of this funnel, they, the bird would be standing, but it would be an ink blot, uh, this. And so their, the bottoms of their feet would get all stained with ink. And then when they were going into, what's that German word again? Yeah, Zugenruhe. When they'd start going into Zugenruhe, migratory restlessness, they would leap off the ink pad, and since it was a 360 funnel, 
they would jump up and of course there'd be a, a screen on the top so they couldn't jump out. But when they would jump, they would jump in a certain direction and get their little dirty feet on the, on the blotting paper. And so they could look at the activity of all these dirty footprints mm -hmm. on the blotting paper in a certain direction. And they could then, you know, if it was cloudy, then there would be sort of a, if it was stellar, mag, uh, either a solar compass or a stellar compass, if it was cloudy, it would, uh, they would not have ex access to how, how to jump, you know? Right. They don't see the constellations right. or they don't see where the sun is in the sky. They controlled the, for those variables. And so the blotting paper would be sort of stained randomly in yeah. all directions. But if they put, if the stars were available, then they would orient correctly. Interesting. And uh, yeah. And then if they did it in a planetarium and they'd rotate the sky so the star pattern was shifted a certain number of degrees, then the birds would jump the wrong way. But it's the right way if those were real stars. Yeah. Interesting. So I love it. Yeah. But then sometimes it's a combination of stellar and so finding, fine tuning stellar versus ma uh, magnetic. Um, so yeah, lots to, to learn out there. Yeah. Lots of, lots of different, uh, types of, of physiological mechanisms, sense and response mechanisms at play. One of my favorite migrations is that of the Swainson's hawk. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a bird that's up here in our neck of the woods now. And it has just, if you look at the, the range maps and they often color them in your field guide or in your, if you go online to all about birds or Cornell's uh, oh, site man, that's or something great, like that. Yeah, it, we've got to recommend. They're fantastic. That little commercial here. Absolutely. All about birds. org. <laughs> is it dot org? I think, just, just Google yeah. <laughs> all about birds. It's really good. Cornell University, they are sort of the quintessential bird research center. Yeah, they do. They make, and they make so much great stuff available. If you're interested in your kids doing bird watching from their feeder, they're, they have all kinds of useful tools to, to make it fun and also to do a little science at the very, same time. Yeah, very user-friendly. Yeah. You know, you type in the bird you want to learn about and... There's a little icon on feeding, habitat, uh, migration, and then you can even click on the uh, sound and listen to the bird's yeah. call, not only just the default regular call, but different types of calls. Yeah, they're really great. Uh, so if you look at the range map there for Swainson's hawk, you'll see that there's this, uh, the breeding range is in North America kind of in, in western, western central North America up into Canada a little bit. And the, the winter range is way down. You might even have to look up your geography on South America to see that it's primarily in, in kind of high elevation area in Argentina and all this yellow in between. The is blue, it Patagonia? Or? Uh, it's called the Pampas region. Oh, the Pampas Yeah. Region. And so, uh, and then all of this in between where they're not, they only migrate through the vast majority of both continents. Wow. And so Swainson's hawks, a really interesting uh, that is amazing. bird here. They, one, one of the interesting things about migration is uh, in thinking, you know, if you want to think about a cost benefit analysis, am I going to go to Baja to eat fish tacos for the winter? 
you know, you're going to have to change your diet. Diet's mm-hmm. probably going to have to change. And so these birds that typically, they still will eat some of these critters up north, but they focus almost exclusively on grasshoppers and orthopterans in the Pampas region of Argentina. Um, and then when they come north, they have a lot wider variety of food items, including hmm. a lot of small mammals. Wow. Yeah. And so dietary changes yeah. are that's, a part of that decision-making or a phenomenon. That's, uh, that's great. Yeah. So I uh, had no idea that the- Isn't that incredible? Uh, you know, that reminds me of uh, a colleague of mine back at Liberty University, um, Gene Sattler. He, he studied, uh, well, he's an ornithologist there and he's- he would have students uh, looking at the migration of broadwing hawks mm. uh, going down the Appalachians. And um, it was really neat how the, you know, it's good to just be efficient on expenditure of energy. And when you're doing long range migration, let's uh, have the weather, the local thermals uh, help you out. Why, you know, expend a ton of uh, energy flapping your wings and, you know, wasting that energy yeah. when you can use weather patterns to help you along. And so what's really neat is the other, other raptors would do it too, but there'd be a, an up, a thermal updraft coming up the slope of the Appalachians and the broadwing hawks would see this this rising column well not see it but feel the rising column of air and then just do an escalator ride up uh sort of a corkscrew riding the thermals without flap really i don't know do they flap much not usually they, they just, just ride they that just thing. ride it they just go in circles and like a spiral uh going up a spiral going up the thermal yeah. And then once they get to the top of the thermal, then they peel off and glide uh, along their migratory route, a slow descent. And they would just go for miles and miles without flapping, a slow descent, and then hit another thermal. Right again. Ride up yeah. all the way to the top. And yeah. then peel off at the top and ride another, a long way down. And very efficient at minimizing energy expenditure. Yeah. And if you're in a migration pathway, you know, and you look up and you see a hawk soaring in a circular manner and watch for a minute or two, you'll often see another. If it's migration, you keep looking up and you might see three or four stacked on top of each other. Riding that and same thermal up. And if it's a vulture, up. it's just because there's a dead animal <laughs> down below. That's right. They're, they're riding <laughs> in circles and they're deciding when to come. Get down. inside quick. But uh, we used to go to Hawk Ridge in Duluth, Minnesota in college mm-hmm. uh, to watch that migration. They would, the birds would come out of Canada, the raptors, the owls, the owls migrated at night. The hawks migrated during the day. So they were diurnal migrants. And we would, Duluth, Minnesota's on the western edge of Lake Superior and there's a lot of rocky shoreline there and the hawks would descend out of Canada and they would all, most of them would funnel west and just tuck right along that edge of, of Western Lake Superior. And so you get this funnel and mm-hmm. you'd see hundreds or even thousands of raptors in a day. Wow. And so we saw just broad wings, eagles, and then at night, the sawwets and the, and the great horn or not yeah. great horns, but some other migrating owls would pass through. So what do you call those uh, migratory routes? Uh, what are they called? Yeah, they're, they're called flyways. Flyways, that's right. Yeah. Flyways. Uh, when I was reading 
Edwin Way Teal, he would talk about the flyways. And there's, there's one place where he was a mid 20th century naturalist. I, I think I mentioned him before in one of our podcasts where, but he, he wrote about a flyway going across Lake Erie mm. or Ontario, one of those two. Yeah. And just lots of different birds that would fly through this, along this peninsula and then out over Point Pelee. It's amazing. Uh, we're, we're kind of, we have the short end of the stick in North America because the, the, the Western flyway is really diffused, but that, that Atlantic and that Mississippi flyway up into Canada, ooh, mm-hmm. they really concentrate the birds. That's great. Yeah. And, and so you bring up something there. Birds often also use some cues along the way. They'll, they'll, and they'll, and they'll spend the, uh, and other creatures too, they'll stage in an area, if they can tell the, the pressure, if it's a low pressure system and the storm is socking them in, they'll actually spend an extra day or two before hopping back up to migrate. Um, and so weather cues, are, as including, of course, barometric pressure, birds are very attuned to, the, to those, types of, um, those types of stimuli. Right. Yeah. I was just one other thing that Gene Sattler told me is that they would often use those updrafts going along the slopes of uh, Appalachians, but there were other thermals that were generated by human development. So you have a big, huge asphalt parking lot and uh, the sun would heat up that asphalt parking lot and cause a thermal there. Oh, wow. Interesting. So you would get where traditionally the broad hawks wouldn't be riding any thermals there, but Above these parking lots, you get these big thermals and hawks and other migratory raptors would use those and uh, change, change the route a little bit. Interesting. Yeah. So. Uh, so, so birds and fish and turtles. Uh, oh, yeah. Re- reptiles? Sea turtles. Yeah. Sea turtles for sure. Oh, yeah. They're, they're Insects, kind of the monarchs. But many, many, many other creatures will migrate. We just scrape the surface. Well, yeah. And we'll do, and we'll, we'll probably have to have some more migration episodes. Yeah. Maybe another twist on it, but yeah. All right. I'm heading to, I'm heading North. It's spring, heading to Alaska for the summer and then Baja in the winter. Are you? No, but oh, I want, yeah. I have Zugenrua. <laughs> <laughs> I want to gotcha. migrate. <laughs> gotcha. All <laughs> right. We'll see you next, we'll see you next time. See well, you next time, Gordon. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.